Andrade. Christopher O'Connor. All right. So what's <laughs> going on over there in, in, in Guangzhou, uh, South Korea tonight? Well, um, every overall, everything's okay. But I'm, but I tell you, man, I'm pissed off. Why is that? Man, all these bands that are not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that should be, and that's our episode today, I'm just pissed. I'm livid. I'm, I'm yeah. give, I want to give the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame committee a piece of my mind and a piece of their asses in return as well. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's always like a barroom uh, topic, you know, like in any walk of life. Who's not in the Hall of Fame and who is? And, I mean, if you think about it, any Hall of Fame is bullshit to begin with. Uh, but uh, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame case, it's particularly egregious, and we'll be talking about uh, that uh, today. A uh, couple of things worth mentioning. Uh, we'll get to this later on in the episode, but RIP Charlie Watts yes. of the Rolling Stones. We would be remiss to uh, not mention that. Uh, he's one of the great rock drummers who ever lived. Uh, definitely one of the subtler, but uh, if it wasn't for him, those so- Stones songs would not swing as well as they did. So RIP Charlie. Yeah, I mean that that's the thing. He's never mentioned in the same breath as uh, you know, guys like Keith Moon and John Bonham and Neil Peart. And Neil yeah. Peart, you know, because he he wasn't bombastic. He came from a jazz background, which is all about subtlety and restraint. And 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 well, in Charlie Watts' case, he took that in a pop sensibility, and the pop sensibility is all about playing to the song. Yeah, and, which uh, which he did brilliantly. And yeah. And not only if you that, notice, but, th- th- those other guys, they always were in front. Yeah. Uh, Moon, Bonham. Charlie Watts was always like half a beat behind Keith Richards. Oh, yeah. Rich- which, Richards' riff was always in front. And then Watts came later, you know? Oh, yeah. Which, you know, which which was great and kind of trailed it. But he he had that snare that just like propelled it all. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, like Mick Fleetwood kind of took that concept and took it like even further and like put his fill in in the last possible millisecond. Yeah, but but that started with Charlie Watts. So uh, R.I.P. Charlie. Oh, uh, before we f- uh, forget, uh, hey Morrissey, can you sing <laughs> us a little bit of Tiny Dancer? All right, here we go. Blue jean baby, L.A. lady, seamstress for the band, <laughs> pretty eyed, pirate smile. You'll marry a music man. and welcome to our parallel universe here the sky is always blue but it's like periwinkle blue and the grass is like purple and you know the air is lighter and the world is all peaceful and there's no war and uh basically john lennon wrote imagine in the parallel universe so here we are and uh (laughs) We get to, we get to make the tastes. We get to program the radios. We get to determine who's in the stadiums, and we get to tell you who we think ought to be huge, but ain't in our world, unfortunately. So, 
Uh, on that note, Arturo, uh, who are you vibing on in the parallel universe? Vibing on probably the biggest parallel universe star in this podcast. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> Ty Siegel, the garage rock, punk rock, grunge rock, heavy metal magpie, and his new album, Harmonizer. Yeah, I think I think we need to stop calling him rock and roll Jesus because we've uh, ha- had his second coming at least a half a dozen times <laughs> in the life of this podcast. You know what I mean? No shit. You know, yeah. a few episodes ago, this very podcast named Ty Siegel as the number one artist in modern rock. And since I am this podcast's official Ty guy, much, <laughs> like, much like you, Chris, are this podcast's Wizard of King Gizzard. Yep. Of course, I'm making Ty Siegel's brand new album, A Parallel Universe Priority. Now, this is his first solo album of new material in two years, which is like an eternity for him. (laughs) (laughs) Being such, it's fitting that this new album is an almost radical departure for him. In short, Ty goes electronic. That's right. Lots of synthesizers and lots of drum machines. But before you think Siegel has gone the way of the Chemical Brothers, not a bad thing, by the way. I'm a Chemical Brothers fan. Yeah, me too. Rest assured that this is still very much and ostensibly a rock album. Now, two episodes ago, we discussed ZZ Top's uh, 1983 classic Eliminator in our vault segment. Harmonizer is essentially Ty Siegel's eliminator in that the music is based on a bedrock of cool electronics. In Siegel's case, drum machines and slightly more syncopation and uh, and synth washes for texture with manic, crazy-ass guitar riffing on top of it. Now, Ty Siegel, though, is not a boogie-woogie blues rock enthusiast like Billy Gibbons. Um, Siegel's rock and roll guitar riffing comes in the form of really gnarly heavy metal guitar and bass riffs. Now, I've always been of the opinion that just because a band or artist tries something new, it doesn't mean it's automatically good. Nope. Lots of music critics try to bend themselves over backwards to like try and accommodate a new musical direction by a longtime favorite artist, you know. For example, two years ago, when some in the music media tried their best to defend that St. Vincent-produced stinker by Slater Kinney, you know, yeah. uh, that, that level of dishonesty and ass-kissing just bugs the shit out of me. Yeah, me too. So that's why I feel compelled in saying that Harmonizer, while a brave stylistic effort and a bold experiment, it kind of offers mixed results. Um, the songwriting isn't as tight and as sharp as usual with a few too many awkward vocal phrasings and dissonant chord progressions. Um, the shrill, like kind of overly processed electronics tend to be more off-putting than engaging. Um, one gets the feeling that Ty needs some organic drumming to give his music more of a swing that his best songs have. And the album also has too much of a plodding pace, particularly in the second half. Overall, it's a very same sounding record. You know, that being said, though, there is some great stuff here. Um, Siegel's incapable of making a total stinker. 
you know, um, Whisper has some of the best gnarliest guitar work on the album and has the most appealing melody and hooks on the whole record. Um, the most effective synthesizer sound on the album is on Erased, which is very, very Nine Inch Nails-esque and how it evokes this creepy foreboding, you know, uh, and the, the, you know, the, the self-pitying, self-loathing lyrics are very uh, Reznor-esque as well. And uh, apparently Ty Siegel got married during the lockdown and uh, his photographer wife, Danae, makes her vocal debut on Feel Good. Now, while the lyrics are admittedly really dopey, you know, being with you makes me feel good when we love like we should. Come on. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. (laughs) Nevertheless, her spoken word delivery is pretty endearing. And the rhythm has this rolling new wave-ish spunk to it. And the guitar riff is punchy and hooky. Honestly, dude, the, the, the album as a whole could have used a little more of this kind of sweetening. Yeah. So out of five stars, my man Ty's latest offering gets a three. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Uh, I will say this, though. There's some pretty awesome riffs uh, on, on this record. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, what, he, Wax, he, he, Wax he is Man. a riff master. You know? Yeah, Waxman. Uh, the title song is great. Uh, like you said, Whisper is fun. Uh, yeah, there's just a lot of, uh, you know, obviously, like you said, ZZ Top, uh, it would... This is like, but Ty plays it too slow. No, no, it's interesting that, you know, you and I in the parallel universe sometimes will bring in interesting stuff. And, you know, we've had our share of lukewarm reviews. Uh, you know, the dry cleaning record is, you know, hey, this is interesting. I'll never <laughs> listen to it again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, kind of the spirit. Now, this one, I'm on the fence about my pick for this week. By no uh, means is it a rock album. <laughs> not not a rock album. Uh, this is uh, so. Here is my choice for this week's parallel universe: uh, the Mercury Prize, uh, which, as uh, most of our most ardent uh, listeners will know, this is kind of the British hipster seal of approval uh, that every year uh, a, uh, a collective of rock and roll journalists and artists and producers and uh, maestros, uh, they award the Mercury Prize award to what they feel is the best album to come out of the UK for that year. And generally, they have a list of nominees. And uh, the list of nominees has been out for a couple of weeks now. They will be announcing the winner on September the 9th. And so I looked at this list and I said, okay, let's let's focus on some of these albums. Now, one thing to note is that uh, on this podcast in the Parallel Universe, we've covered three of the 12 records. Uh, Gets Conflict of Interest, uh, which, tell you the truth, I think will win. Uh, very good record. Uh, Salt's Untitled Rise. You know, Salt is uh, their kind of, uh, if Max and Kay and Curtis Mayfield had a kid, or uh, Tricky and uh, Curtis Mayfield had a kid. And then That's the one that should win. Yeah, and then there's well, it, it's a short record. It's 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 almost like a like a, a long EP uh, in some respects. There's also Wolf Alice is on this album too. I know Barty, you hate it, but uh, everybody else seems to love it. So who knows that might win? So, but we've covered those three records, and it's worth mentioning that Mogwai lives. Uh, Mogwai doesn't never dies, kind of like rock and roll. Uh, they're on this list. 
But when I was looking at this list, there was one entry that really stuck out to me, like, what the hell is this doing on here? And this is an album and a collaboration by Floating Points, Pharaoh Sanders, and the London Symphony Orchestra. Uh, those are three tastes that don't generally go together. Uh, they have uh, recorded an album and they released it last year called Promises. And so I took it upon myself to explore this record and was really intrigued uh, by the experience of diving into this record. Uh, now for background, uh, Floating Points is a British uh, producer and DJ and composer, uh, real name Sam Shepard. Uh, no, not the guy that uh, was married to Jessica Lang. Uh, this is uh, another Sam Shepard. Uh, he's been mm-hmm. uh, kicking around in the British uh, uh, disco and dance scenes for a while. He's got two albums that he came out with before this that were intriguing enough to make a fan out of all people, Pharaoh Sanders. Yes, that Pharaoh Sanders, the yeah. uh, the famous and brilliant tenor saxophone player uh, whose work in the 60s and 70s. I mean, that was kind of like the golden era for tenor sax players. No shit. I mean, think about them, you know, like Kirk and uh, Coltrane, although he was a little earlier uh, than that. But there were a whole bunch of these sax geniuses that came along in the 60s and 70s. And but, you know, Pharaoh's work was interesting. His uh recorded output dates back to 1965. Uh, He hadn't put his name on a release or done anything like sort of new studio work since 2003. Mm -hmm. However, he was intrigued enough by the, what he saw as this compositional streak and multi-instrumentalism of floating points of Sam Shepard to become friends with him. And this turned into this collaboration uh, called Promises. Now, this is in the grand uh, tradition, uh, depending on how you want to look at it. It's the Charlie Mingus uh, concept of taking jazz and putting big band and composition to it and having these symphonic pieces. So basically, you're looking at jazz and pop symphonies. And that's what uh, this is. And so... Most of this was recorded in the summer of 2019 before COVID. And this was Floating Points and Pharaoh Sanders doing their parts. And then the London Symphony Orchestra string string section of all things got involved during COVID. And they added these lush, weird, kind of cool string arrangements that show up uh, most especially in movement six of this piece. So anyway, just to give it a, a, a... Basic overview. This is a nine movement piece in 47 minutes. Uh, It's so creative. They name the name parts, the movement one, movement two, movement three. (laughs) Uh, I mean, fortunately for us, there's no bowel movement. Uh, In other words, there's no real shit on this. It actually works. It's uh, Well, the the album gives me bowel movements. Oh, okay, so so he's not as much of a fan as, as I am. What else is new? Uh, it's, you know, look, it's basically, you know, it's influences are obvious. There's Mangus, there's David Axelrod, there's Brian Eno, uh, there's Kid A era Radiohead, because there's a lot of the same kind of atmospherics and uh, 
keyboard uh, experimentation that was going on in the middle of Kit A and parts of Amnesiac here. Uh, and then obviously lots of Sanders' peers in the 60s and 70s. And so, you know, you ha- you've got some Miles uh, influence there as well. And so this whole thing is built on a very simple, repetitive motif. Uh, you could argue that if it wasn't for all of the strong playing and arrangements and improvisation of the surrounding players, it would be boring as shit. Uh, it's basically, it's a seven or eight note sprinkle of harpsichord and piano uh, with a little bit of synth mixed in. And the whole piece builds on this. And so you get uh, areas where uh, Sanders really goes to town with his tenor sax solos, which are just so emotive and so strong uh, and so powerful. And then, you know, floating points and they like to put touches like putting vinyl fuzz as an effect on the sax, which shouldn't work, but does. And then by the middle of this piece, kind of in the old days, day in the life and uh, national anthem uh, tradition uh, gets to a huge crescendo with the strings going all over the place, almost like a sci-fi soundtrack. And then you get the end where all of a sudden the Fender Rhodes and B3 come in. Uh, and so you get this uh, mix of, of instruments, but it ends up working. It builds. Uh, it's a very strong headphone exercise. Uh, and I will revisit it, uh, I think, several times because there's some subtle stuff going on there. It's your, it's your classic symphonic piece where it ranges from the barely audible to the barely bearable. Uh, when you get the, uh, like even Mengus's best work, you know, uh, had that where you would get where things would just sort of go dissonant or, you know, things would sort of, it would go from being the most controlled thing in the world to completely unhinged and uncontrolled. Yeah, but, see, uh, but, that, that, but that, this album isn't like that. Mingus was more varied. Like, like, like he, yeah. he would hit you with surprises. Like for me, this album is just one long, continuous fucking bore. It's just yeah. gone. Ugh. That's how I felt listening to like 50 minutes into this record, man. It's just, yeah. just, it's just so continuously slow and lifeless. There's yeah, no well, variety in it. There's nothing in it to, to stand out and make you want to continue listening. And, and apparently languid, you were very languid. You know? Yeah. Uh, apparently you were so bored. It's a 47 minute record, dude. It, oh, you know, it felt like it felt like 70 minutes. Well, there, there you go. And on that note, uh, let us get into what we have uh, already uh, advertised. And this is the Shameless Hall of Fame. Now, Arturo, uh, help us explain where we're going and our thoughts on the criteria for the bands that we're about to discuss. Oh, gladly. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has a reputation for either completely snubbing bands and artists who are totally deserving of being inducted or taking a really long time to induct bands and artists who should have been there much, much earlier. Now, the voting committee for the Hall of Fame, I mean, members of different music media outlets and whatnot, uh, some of them are artists themselves, have have gone some ways to rectifying that with several of the inductees in recent years, you know, like The Cure and Depeche Mode and Nine Inch Nails and Radiohead and all that and Biggie and Tupac and 
yeah, like and all that. Anyway, um, however, there are a shitload of bands and artists who are more, in some cases, much more than worthy of being first ballot inductees. After all, the Foo Fighters got in on their first year of eligibility. Give me a fucking break, all right? I mean, a breakdown of what should be the qualifications for induction, according to the curmudgeons, because we know more than anyone else, all right, is one, a certain degree of commercial success, although not the most paramount, because obviously the Velvet Underground, you know, duh, um, Influence on their peers and successive generations of musicians. Cultural impact measured in subtle and overt ways. Chris, any others? Uh, not well. I mean, what I would say is, I mean, to me, you, you've got cultural impact, you know, like the ones you mentioned, that little bit of success that um, they're known bands that have had success and have had that influence. But there also needs to be a consideration for fame. Uh, as in, if you're going to have a Hall of Fame, uh, it's criminal that it took Kiss as long as it did uh, to get in. Uh, as I remember... I, I'm, not even a, I'm not even a huge Kiss fan, but yeah, they should have been inducted first ballot. Look, know? Kiss became eligible in 2000. Uh, the, the Hall is weird. Uh, it used to be 26 years. Now it's May, it's 25 years but there's a certain cutoff for that. And so like this year, the two first ballot Hall of Famers are the Foo Fighters and Jay-Z. Foo Fighters album came out in 95. Uh, Jay-Z's record came out late in 1996. And for some reason, they're both you know, getting in first yeah. ballot. So it's weird. But the fact that, okay, Kiss becomes eligible in like 2000. It took them until 2014 to actually get into fucking Hall of Fame. This <laughs> is Kiss. I mean, yeah. come on. You think 70s rock. That, you know, obviously there's like, you know, your obvious ones, Bowie and Young and the Rolling Stones and all that. But come on, Kiss, you changed everything. You know, the stage show and all pyro and the makeup and all that shit. Yeah. And it took them that long to get in. And so a lot of political bullshit, but they just sort of, uh, again, there's the Hall of Fame, which means there's the Hall of, it's conversely the Hall of Great and the Hall of Really Famous. You know, yeah. I mean. A baseball equivalent, not to, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but like Goose Gossage, the only reason that dude is in the Hall of Fame was because he was one of the most high profile, famous, revered, and reviled players of his era. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he, he, look, his real claim to fame is he invented the, uh, the idea of the four inning save. You know, so he kind of was one of the initial closers, but that guy doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame. Why is he in there? Famous. I mean, that's basically it. So I think there should be more consideration for that. And so that's why I would argue Iron Maiden should get in there, uh, even though for the most part, except with the exception of Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, they suck. Uh, <laughs> but come on, man. That band was huge. And, you know, come on, Eddie, just, just for inventing Eddie alone, they belong in the Hall of Fame. So here we are dedicating this episode to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and all the ways we think they're getting it wrong in recognizing great rock and roll bands. But the Hall of Fame is a Big Ten exercise, of course, and we just don't have enough space today to talk about a genre that's also been shamelessly defamed by these old white dudes, hip-hop. 
So soon, we'll be dedicating another episode to the hip-hop acts the curmudgeons believe should already be in that goddamn Hall of Fame. Here's one for you, Eric B. and Rakim. Here's another, A Tribe Called Quest. Calling all hip-hop heads, who else do you believe has egregiously been ignored by the Cleveland Guardians of Rock? Let us know at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. All right, so... Who are these bands and artists that have been so fucked over by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame committee? We call them the wrongfully inducted. We're presenting a baker's dozen, which means 13, unlucky 13. And we're, pre- we're going to present them in order of seniority. You know, like who came out with their first release, single, EP, or album first. So we're starting off with the really old timers from one all the way to 13 to the, uh, the, I guess, the youngest, quote unquote, most recent, quote unquote, band on this list. And Chris is going to take number one. We're talking about craft work uh, to begin with. Uh, they got one of these uh, excellence and arts or whatever the hell the name of this award early, was. I think, it's, I think it's early influence. Yes, they, they got this Early Influencers Award. Uh, every year they let in uh, three or four artists that they've left on the shelf too long, and so they, they're throwing them some sort of bone. Now, technically that means they'll be in the Hall of Fame, but not really. Uh, it's not really a full induction. You know, they don't get the presenter. Uh, they, don't get the, um, they don't get the perform. They don't get the plaque or anything like that, which is total utter bullshit it's insulting it really it, is insulting yeah. to craft work especially it, it really bands. is so there's a derisive term that i think most of you have heard called kraut rock uh i don't necessarily like it but craft work is the uh probably the most seminal of uh, these bands that developed the sound uh in the uh 1970s uh very electronic uh, very staccato uh, with these uh, really kind of hypnotic uh, rhythms. Uh, they're danceable, but they're also uh, those of us who love to get lost and, and hyper-focus on, on rhythms and, and concepts. They were brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and subtly great songwriters. It wasn't just a gimmick. Even with the vocators, uh, strong lyricists, um, strong melody, and just, again, it's just that robotic effect with the vocators. Now, uh, just for that, uh, they should get in. Uh, Trans-Europe Express uh, legitimately could be considered one of the top 20 records of the 1970s. Yeah. Um, Absolute genius work. And I was telling Arturo offline before we were starting recording, I can't think of another song other than Trans Europe Express that influenced so many different artists directly uh, based on the same song. Think about this. American folk rocker Neil Young uh, catches this bug, gets his album Trans out of it. Trans Europe Express also serves as the precursor to African Bambada's Planet Rock. Uh, to the point where I don't think Planet Rock uh, samples Trans Europe Express. 
It sure as hell interpolates it, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it... it da, it's, da, 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 da. Yeah. yeah. It's a sample. Yeah. All, all, of, that, all of that stuff is in there. Uh, and then the Pet Shop Boys. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of the sort of the, uh, the lyrical phrasing and uh, the detachment in the lyrics and then their, their uh, reliance on those sort of uh, uh, heavy, heavy and sophisticated electronics comes from this. So from one song, you get the fucking Pet Shop Boys, uh, the Boogie Down Bronx awesomeness of Bambata, and then Neil Young doing his strangest... <laughs> But perhaps most poignant record, uh, yeah. which is basically a love letter to his uh, severely disabled son. So, yeah. anyway, so just for that alone, Crackwood belongs in the Hall of Fame because Trans Europe Express is one of those like hallmark songs where it literally affected in some way or another everything that came after it. So, yeah, and and, and don't forget the uh, the uh, the influence that Kraftwerk in general had on David Bowie. Oh, absolutely, and that, and that whole the, the whole Berlin trilogy era that he had with Brian, and influencing Brian Eno as well. Oh yeah, uh, I mean, just the breadth of Kraftwerk's influence is just just undeniable. They they are one of the most influential music figures in twentieth century. Period. Oh yeah, I mean, it was staggering. Uh, yeah. You know, there's like a before Trans Europe Express, or you know, sort of breakout Kraftwerk, and then after. You know, you yeah. it's like BC and AD yeah. <laughs> for, and, and, yeah, for that kind totally. of music. Mm-hmm. Totally, yeah. I mean, I mean, if I were Ralph Hooter, who's like the the only original member, and he was always like the mastermind of Kraftwerk. If I were him, I would boycott. I wouldn't even show up to, to accept that award. Yeah, that's, just, and, that's, that's an insult. And then, uh, you know, this segues into uh, not necessarily a Kraftwerk. I mean, you can't say that they were that monumental, but at the same time. Uh, if you go on a hour long drive listening to classic rock, chances are you will hear this band. Yeah, and we're talking number two, the band that should be in the Hall of Fame, Jethro Tull. Now, before all you uh, you know pretentious hipsters out there freak out, <laughs> I am not a huge Jethro Tull fan, and honestly, I'm not a fan of progressive rock in general. I I, I don't like prog rock, but Jethro Tull, even while most of their albums were unlistenable, (laughs) they they had incredible rock radio singles. They they were a great rock radio singles band. And I can, how how many Jethro Tull songs like have been like etched in stone in classic rock radio history? Oh, let's see. Thick as, thick as a brick, locomotive breath, especially locomotive breath. Uh, uh, Teacher. Iron, what, what's what's the name of the the most uh, famous one? Iron Lung or Aqualung? Aqualung. Aqualung. Not Cross-eyed Iron Lung. Aqualung. Yeah. <laughs> Iron Lung. Cross-eyed yeah. Mary. Yeah. Yeah. Hem forty three. Cross-eyed Mary's great fucking song. Great groove. Thick as a brick. Bungle yeah. in the Jungle, Skating Away on the Thin Ice of a New Day. Oh, yeah. This, this band had genuine hits. Like, they were like the Stone Temple Pilots of their day. Oh, absolutely. And well, <laughs> I always say, you know, I mean, Stone Temple Pilots are definitely the Jethro Tull of the 90s. Yeah. And Jethro Tull are the Stone Temple Pilots of the 70s. Because think about it. Uh, I know this is the case with uh, Stone Temple Pilots because their greatest hits record, Thank You, 
was on heavy rotation for me for a couple of years because it's like take the three or four best songs off of all of their mediocre records, put them on one record and you get a masterpiece. And you yeah. can do the same thing with, with uh, Jethro Tull. Ian Anderson once in a while got really inspired. Uh, the, the world's greatest uh, rock and roll flute soloist. You know, <laughs> think about one of the freakiest guys ever, like this little guy with like a balding afro who sits cross-legged on a stool playing his little flute. <laughs> yeah, it's like but, yeah. Lord of the Rings meets classic rock or meets Liverpool psychedelic blues. I know. And they were good. And, and, and like they had great singles. They had great songs. And for so many songs like, to have be immortalized on rock radio, come on, you got to put these guys in the Hall of Fame. Even yeah. though I'm not a huge fan, I cannot sit through a whole Jethro Tull album, but I can sit through her greatest hits collection. And just remember, uh, they were the winners of the first ever Grammy for Best Heavy Metal Band. Yeah, they beat out Metallica. Yeah. <laughs> So, hey, that, that, that is one thing worth mentioning. So, uh, Ian Anderson, uh, we wish you well. And uh, Jan Winter, if you're listening, uh, get Jethro Tull the fuck in there, please. Yes, please. We all, we, all, we, all, we all need to hear an 80-year-old man play the flute solo one more time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say, let's see if he can still hit the notes on a locomotive uh, breath. Yeah. All right. Now, number three out of this crazy 13 we're going back to Germany and the band we're talking about, Chris, you mentioned the word Krautrock. Now I, that's kind of been really, I hate that word, but yeah, me too. Um, this band that, that number three, who should be in the rock and roll hall of fame um, is the band that pretty much epitomizes Krautrock. And that is can uh, the band can from Cologne, Germany. Now can, over in the U.S. were nothing more than a cult thing. But over in Europe, continental Europe, they were huge. Yes, and they in were. In the U.K., they were huge. And if you're talking about influence, um, influence on their peers and successive generations of musicians, Ken has that to the nth. They are, after the Velvet Underground, they were the premier art rock band of, of, of their time. If the Velvet Underground were that in the 60s, it was Can in the 1970s. And um, they also had some cultural impact, more so in Europe and in the UK than in the US, but their influence on American bands came later on. Um, any, any American indie rock band that you know flirts their way with funk and dance owes a debt to Can. Yeah, absolutely. Can, can really, really were the kind of the first ones. I mean, they, they, they were. How would I describe them for those of you out there who have never heard Can? Um, think of like the Grateful Dead. Strip away the solos, accentuate the rhythm. Yeah, <laughs> and, then, and there's Can. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. And then you know you you put in like synthesizer flourishes and you know like. Uh, ambiently recorded harmonicas and other yeah. kind of weird shit. And, and so, they, they, yeah. yeah. And the thing about Can, they made ambient music catchy, which is a really yeah. hard fucking thing to do. Yeah, no, yeah, they, no, they really did. And and it, it was weird because, like I said, it was this this metronomic drum machine programming, uh, kind of early electronic drums with all this kind of weird, like you said, kind of ethereal ambient uh stuff but it, yeah it, it was catchy and it was it was well done it was smart 
huge yeah. they were a huge seminal influence on post punk huge seminal influence on synth pop huge seminal influence on talking heads yeah. <laughs> you know that alone is something um huge seminal influence just on the 90s techno uh electronica scene um huge influence on EDM which as we what we now call EDM which yes. took off in the mid noughties um can are at least stateside unsung heroes and those those motherfuckers should be in the hall of fame and they should be before they all die because like two of them are already dead i think yeah <laughs> you yeah. Know? and these guys need to be in the hall of fame they really really should oh yeah and they influenced david bowie as well hmm. go figure <laughs> yeah no yeah absolutely absolutely like i said they were in some ways you could say they maybe they were probably more of an influence on bowie than than crap uh than in some ways, yeah. Noise, yeah. the other band, but Can Can were way bigger. Can Can were actually very commercially successful in in, in Europe and the UK. Yeah, uh, and, but, and this uh, you know this this kind of brings up the theme that you comes up in this list. And you know we may end up doing a part two and a part three of this whole concept of you know right. fuck you Hall of Fame, let these bands in. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these bands that were huge in Europe and you know kind of influence scenes, you know, parochial scenes, whether it was in Germany or England uh, or anywhere else, even Sweden, uh, they don't necessarily get the respect from the American uh, rock and roll intelligentsia, the corporate intelligentsia, you know, the on winners and right. folks like that, uh, which is hard to understand. And, and I think that there's almost a prejudice or a snottiness about it that, you know, we'd rather kiss uh, Eric Clapton's ass and Robbie Robertson's ass and uh, Lou Reed's ass, and not. Wow. And they get a little myopic, I think, especially if you think about it. Like, yeah, they yeah. they let in all those British bands from the '60s and '70s, the big ones, or the early '70s. But think about it, after 1980, uh, how many of these British bands that had this kind of cultural, not not but musical influence, or were seminal. How many of those are actually in the Hall of Fame? Not that many. It took Depeche Mode and The Cure like a hundred years to get in. Yeah, and like the Zombies, who were like brilliant back in the '60s, they were you know peers of uh, the Hollies and The Cure, and well, not The Cure. The Cure. <laughs> they were peers of the Hollies and the Kinks, yeah, and uh, you know bands like that. And it took them until like I think it was like two years ago or something to get into the Hall of Fame. So. Yeah. Again, so that that speaks to the prejudice of the Hall of Fame. And so, yeah. uh, again, Jan Winter, fuck you. Yeah. And speaking of endless rhythm, that ends leads us to number four, who should definitely be in the Hall of Fame. Chris. Yeah, Fela Kuti. Um, this, uh, he is an absolute genius because he took the James Brown emphasis on the one and the funk and those uh, funk and soul principles and applied them to parochial African rhythms uh, and came up with some brilliant stuff. These like these workouts, they're as much workouts as they are. They're compositional. There's jazz influence. There's rock influence. Uh, some of the best horn arrangements I've ever heard in my life. Uh, Fela, this is another one of those derisive terms that I wish would go away. Kind of like Krautrock, Afrobeat. 
uh, <laughs> d- does not really capture what's going on there. Uh, yeah. In the technical sense, even the Malians, I guess, count as Afrobeat. Right. But it's just such a uh, it's such a limiting tag. You know, it's yeah. it's not very, very very reductive. Yeah, it it really is because within those African uh, scenes, and it's look, it's not Africa is a big fucking place. You know, it's not it's just, a continent. <laughs> yeah, so there should be like Mali beat and Kenya beat and Senegal beat. And Nigeria yeah. be, you know, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, and that's there. And then, you know, like I said, but Fela of, of all those guys, uh, he's the one that kind of mainstreamed that brand of African rock. Uh, one of my favorite uh, late night, uh, need a relax, but also need a, a smile in my brain albums is uh, his album, Expensive Shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's two songs. Uh, all his albums were two songs. Basically. <laughs> one uh, is 15 minutes. The other one is 18 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And it, but it's a brilliant, like 20 minutes. It's, uh, you know, there's the two songs. I mean, actually it kind of shocked me that, uh, expensive shit showed up as the soundtrack to a beer commercial or something in the last five nice. years. I'm sitting there watching TV and then all of a sudden I'm like, wait a second. No, 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 no. It's like it's selling like Pabst Blue Ribbon or some shit. Oh, at least at least Fela's estate is making some money. Yeah, there you go. But <laughs> I'm I'm always always been a fan of the B side, if you want to call it, to that record. I mean, there's just some really great. Um, uh, again, it's 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 very it's a perfect meld of jazz and funk with this sort of African. I guess you could almost call it marching music too. You yeah, know, it's um, and, you know, Fela just he was he was an innovator. He was a visionary. Uh, he was a hell of a, a, a hornsman. I mean, he was a sax player himself and a guitarist and uh, multi-instrumentalist. But man, those horn arrangements. Oh, yeah. Only one who's ever done it better, probably in pop, rock, whatever you want to call it, is James Brown. I mean, yeah. You know, James Brown had a real gift for uh, for horn arrangements. And so did Fela. Uh, he belongs in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I have a feeling he may end up with one of those bullshit early influence awards eventually. Yeah, I know. But, but he should be a he should be a full member uh, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, listen, man. If if Miles Davis and John Coltrane are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Fela fucking Kuti should be in the goddamn Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. No and shit. I would argue, I would argue Fela Kuti was more influential on rock music than either Miles or Coltrane. Yeah. You know? I mean, I mean, Col- see, see talking heads, see yeah. the Mars Volta. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you could say that. I don't know. Coltrane was pretty influential because a lot of those early guitar guards, gods in America, Dwayne Allman. Yeah. And, uh, those guys. I mean, Miles and John, uh, Col- I mean, Allman went on record as kind of saying that they were just trying to do what they were doing in terms of their interpretive uh, takes on their songs. And, and don't forget Roger McGuinn with the birds. Yeah, yeah, he well. does, we, the same thing. Yeah, with all his Rick and eight miles, stuff. eight miles, eight miles high is basically them trying to do Coltrane. Yeah, absolutely. And then even that extends into like OK Computer, uh, yeah. too. So again, uh, they do have some influence. But yeah, you're right. Fela, in terms of rock and in terms of the kind of, uh, he's kind of a influence on prog rock. 
if you think about yeah. it, starting from the late 70s on, there's a lot of yeah. folks that try to catch those African rhythms and weird time signatures and all that. So, uh, yeah, Fela, not just an early influencer, he's uh, he's a genius on par with a lot of the, his American counterparts. So let him the fuck in. Yes. Now, number five, we should be in. Another one should be let the fuck in. Pioneering British metal band. People talk about the new uh, the, the the new wave of British heavy metal, the Iron Maidens, the Judas Priest. They can all suck my ass. Number five, Motorhead. No Why shit. the hell is Lemmy Kilmeister? How how the hell is Lemmy Kilmeister not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Let me make my 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 case for Motorhead. Okay, on one hand, he's an icon. Let me let me Kilmeister is a fucking icon. He's a rock and roll icon among icons. Hall I mean, of Fame. Yeah, he's a Hall of Fame icon. Um, that man is heavy metal. Like he 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 is as rock and roll as Keith Richards. You know? Oh yeah, no shit. Um, um, or was I should say? Yeah, he, I was gonna say. <laughs> Keith, Keith outlived him. Yep. Yeah, Keith outlived him, but. Uh, just that, okay, that alone. But musically, Motorhead was extremely important and influential. Um, they, I wouldn't say they invented thrash, but they were one of the first ones that kind of gave birth to it. You know, they they, they yeah. really did. You know, there'd be no Metallica without Motorhead. Probably not. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, the, essentially, um, Kill, yeah, Kill Them All was a take on Motorhead. Basically. Yeah. Um, I mean, Judas Priest didn't start doing their shtick until Motorhead was doing their shtick. Oh, I know. Be- before Motorhead, Judas Priest were Led Zeppelin wannabes. Okay. Oh, yeah. I so, mean, well, I mean, basically, Judas Priest is, uh, as we know him, is Deep Purple plus Motorhead. Yeah. And Motorhead also, the, the amazing thing about them is that they're a heavy metal band. They were a heavy metal band, but you could really classify them as punk as well. Oh, yeah. They I mean, definitely had, you know, and they, they they were one of the few metal bands that actually had a large punk audience and were influential on punk bands. Oh, absolutely! Ace, Ace well. of Spades is one of the five best punk songs ever. Like you can see, I can, you can make the argument that Motorhead invented thrash, while simultaneously, accidentally inventing hardcore punk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Hello, minor threat. Hello, black flag. Yeah, you know? no shit. Yeah, like I said, yeah, let me kill Meister for that kind of uh, kind of like hard chugging, fuck you, metal slash punk kind of straightforward chugga 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 uh, kind of rock. They're basically the godfathers uh, yeah. for sure. And again, like we talk about like iconic imagery and all of this. I mean, think about like little kill, let me kill Meister with big ass, huge bass guitar. Like singing up into his mic. He wasn't uh, little. He was a pretty tall guy, actually. Okay, well then I always thought he was little because he always looked little because he had a his bass was huge and he always <laughs> had that mic where he's singing up into it. He was like know? a six feet, six one guy, but he but he did have a huge bass. That was no, I, I, I never thought he was Ryan James Dio, but <laughs> but like given the the enormous guitar and then like singing up into the mic. Uh, yeah. yeah, he, he, I think he obviously, I mean, he had a sense of humor, I guess, but yeah, no, yeah, definitely. Um, just who cares about the other guys? Uh, you know, you can't really let Lemmy in cause it's not like Lemmy ever had like a solo career of any yeah. note. I know. So. 
yeah. Lemmy is is and was Motorhead. Yeah, <laughs> and, and Motorhead and, and, and Motorhead should be in the goddamn Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. Now the first band here is number six. Number six band that should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I would argue this is this band. The next two bands actually are probably the two most important post-punk bands ever. Um, this one, not as important as the next one, <laughs> but yeah. this band is probably the second most. And we're talking about Susie and the Banshees. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. What, what are the credentials for Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Certain degree of commercial success. Susie and the Banshees had a lot of that in the UK and Europe. Susie Sue is a pop was and is kind of a pop culture star. She's an icon. She was yep. also a fashion icon. She's yes. a goth icon. Even though Susie and the Banshees music was never really goth, but she was a goth and is a goth icon. Iconic. Just as iconic as Lemmy is for metal, that's Susie for post-punk. And, and just remember that in the late 80s, they also had their crossover sellout hit that went top sure. 10. Exactly. So, so they so did they, that. But even before then, like you said, that post-punk sound. And again, she was kind of like the Debbie Harry of, yeah. of post-punk uh pre-goth she was uh, dark debbie is what she was britannia yep dark dark debbie uh yeah. total icon uh you know uh, again great band uh and it just they uh some bands have a gimmick and then they live up to the gimmick mm-hmm. uh you know for sure talking heads again you know is one of the great examples uh, of that uh, but yeah no Susie and the banshees uh for them to be left on the sidelines is just that's criminal Again. Yeah, and like I said the, the icon, the iconography with Susie, that's your cultural impact right there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. And they and sold some records. But, and they sold records and influential too. They influenced the cure. The cure yeah. stole their sound from Susie and the Banshees. You but, know? but here's the thing, and you yeah. can contrast them, and I can start mentioning our next artist. You can contrast them a little bit with Joy Division too. So so they're kind of the two creators of post punk uh and or goth. And here we are 40 years later, uh, and Ian Curtis and Joy Division still have their fanboys in both Britain and America. Uh, my mom's boyfriend, his 20, I guess he's now 28-year-old grandson, wow. has been a wow. worshiper of The Cure and Joy Division for years. I mean, those that's, are his heroes. That's very young to be a Joy Division fan. Yeah, he's, you know, like I said, he's your classic kind of, you know, uh, very... Um, uh, what would you, what would you call him? Very deadpan, depressed, uh, you know, rock and roll punk attitude, uh, white kid. Uh, and you know, sort of aspire. He, he has a band purely inspired by those two bands. But so I would say that Ian Curtis kind of lives on, whereas yeah. Su- Susie's a little bit more forgotten, which is too bad. Yeah. Uh, not amongst us, of course, and not amongst, and look, the intelligentsia know better. They know Susie's influence. Um, I don't yeah. know why they're in the Hall of Fame. I don't get that uh, for sure. Say and, and Joy Division number seven. I mean, yeah. They're, they're, by the way, they yes, they are our number seven band. <laughs> yes. And yeah, we jumped the gun a little bit. Uh, Joy Division. I have not spent as much time as I should on Joy Division. I'm much more knowledgeable about our number eight band. Which, which springs from Joy Division. Uh, but I will say this, uh, Ian Curtis, uh, I always joke that if he had waited four more years to kill himself, he would be more revered. 
Uh, he, was, <laughs> he was 23. Yeah. Should have made it to 27. And yeah. Yeah, there'd be coffee mugs and T-shirts a, a plenty uh, and retrospectives a plenty with him. But uh, brilliant songwriter, brilliant frontman, brilliant personality or so you know had that yeah. iconoclasm to him uh love will tear us apart another one of those songs like trans europe express that changed everything and yeah. it's really a rhetorical question i mean how much of the rock music that followed modeled itself after that uh yeah. you know you can say and it's it's one of those songs that uh let's just put it this way there's so many bands that kind of adopted that sound and that aesthetic afterwards that yep. sometimes it took me a long time to figure out that that was Joy Division and not The Cure and not yeah. New Order and not yeah. Bauhaus and yeah. you know or any any of those bands uh, from uh, the early '80s of uh, and it's it's interesting Joy Division they basically invented goth they yes. <laughs> basically defined post punk but they literally die out before we get to what we call new wave. And yeah. so they're kind of the precursor or they, they're kind of pre new wave. They're post punk and they're pre new wave. And yeah. within that sliver, they are the probably best of those bands. Yeah. They yeah, really only did two records. Uh, and uh, one of which, uh, you know, which has isolation and several other things is just, you know, closer that that always makes, uh, I believe it's every like top 100, uh, records ever made list uh, yeah. closer is in it. Yeah. Uh, as it should be. Unknown uh, pleasures is just as good. Both those albums are perfect. Oh yeah. Opinion. But, but closer is the one that is stood the test of time and still ends up high on those lists. And like every single one of them, British, American, uh, internet, uh, print, uh, you know, household names, and you know, bullshit yeah. like pitchfork. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, it, it is a uh, Chris O'Connor curmudgeon rock report tradition to pick on pitchfork. Uh, <laughs> shit fork. Shit fork. There you go. <laughs> uh, but be that as it may, uh, Joy Division absolutely belongs in the Hall of Fame. Ian Curtis uh, has stood the test of time uh, as an icon. Love will tear us apart just alone. For that, I mean, they weren't a one-hit wonder, but that is a shining monument to wonderful rock and roll songwriting. And yeah, per totally. per perfect rock and roll songwriting. And they've had so many big-name bands cover them. I mean, Nine Inch Nails, um, their version of Dead Souls is, you know, really, yeah. really good. Not as good as Joy Division's, but it's yeah. still really, really good. Yeah, just Joy Division is just... Like you said, I, mean, I can't add anything more to that. They, they invent... They pretty much... They were not a goth band, but they invented goth. They, yeah. they invented the template. Yeah, I was going to say they 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 invented goth music. Uh, yeah. They they were not big fans of the eyeshadow and the uh, and the phony baloney sadness thing. Uh, Rob, you know, Robert Smith that was his cross to bear. So, <laughs> but he got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. On this episode, we took aim at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and their insultingly glaring omissions. For the next episode. The concept will be quite simple. I love it. He hates it. We'll each choose albums that we love, but that we also know the other person doesn't like at all or thinks is just overrated. Sparks will fly as the curmudgeons will duke it out and make their arguments for and against. 
Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or hit us on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. Without Joy Division, we wouldn't get our number eight band, which belongs right. in the Hall of Fame, which is New Order, exactly. which makes sense because Bernard Sumner was in uh, Joy Division with Ian Curtis. So was and, the bass player and the drummer. It's the whole band. Minus yeah, yeah basically, yeah. Mr. Cook is, is also... <laughs> Uh, comes along with with them. New Order basically takes the uh, that post punk uh, template, and they add uh, synthesizers and, and drum programming and real pop sheen to that, and they become one of the more successful and influential bands of uh, British nineteen eighties. Yeah, yeah, British pop electro pop rock whatever you want to call it new wave uh basically i think uh what's the first band you think of when you think new wave uh like true new wave uh true new wave let me see a soft cell yeah there's soft cell and then there's there's blondie but right after yeah. that i would say okay. new i would say new yeah. order yeah, uh, yeah I, mean, I, I mean the the pet shop boys owe their career to new order <laughs> oh absolutely i mean a lot of bands owe their careers to uh to new order like jesus jones uh, yeah. you know, little, little different, but they kind of were there, you know, they're very much derivative of new order and look, new order just, uh, they're another one. They actually, it's interesting because they, I always thought they did good records, uh, you know, just full, full albums, but obviously brilliant singles, blue Monday, incredible. Yeah. Uh, you know, bizarre love, beloved, bizarre love triangle, brilliant, uh, right. very, very much covered all the time. Uh, and then they actually did a very, very, very good record in 2005, which was mm -hmm. shocking because they hadn't done anything in 100 years. And then they come back and lo and behold, New Order is still New Order. So mm. uh, Bernard Sumner, hell of a singer, hell of a songwriter, hell of a rock star, um, and really defined that period between 1984 and like 84, 85, 86. They were kind of rulers of the universe. But here again, I think is a British prejudice uh, at work. Yeah, you know yeah. that. And because also, like, here's the thing: like, as far as that, you know, British synth pop. I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of synth pop. I don't love it. I like some of it, but the two titanic figures of British synth pop were New Order and Depeche Mode. Absolutely. Okay? Now, Depeche Mode was that other ruler of the universe in synth pop in the mid '80s. Don't forget that. Right. <laughs> they were that. They were the other ones. But New Order, sorry, Depeche Mode are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and New Order aren't. <laughs> My only guess is that because Depeche Mode were so commercially huge, whereas New Order were like barely an arena band, Depeche Mode mm -hmm. were a fucking stadium band. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, yeah, Depeche Mode got bigger. And again, yeah, and, you know, to be fair, I think Martin Gore ultimately was a better songwriter than Sumner. Uh, yeah. I think in the overall. And Gahan is a better singer too. Oh well, yeah, no shits. And uh, like I said, you know, Gahan, you know, the uh, the curse of the handsome guy, uh, yeah. you know, uh, that that always that always helps. Yeah. But New Water definitely belongs in the Hall of Fame. Uh, they uh, were absolutely seminal, and they actually were pretty big here too. Uh, not quite as big in, as in England. In England, they were kind of like the oasis of their time. There's always that like that one band. Yeah. Not quite that big. They weren't that. They weren't that. They, they weren't doing Nebworth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. They, yeah, they weren't quite doing two hundred thousand uh, person festivals. But no, yeah. they were. 
They were, they were pretty big. big. They were big. Their new order were big, man. And yeah. they, they actually they actually were kind of big in America too, but more like on the club scene, like the, the like the dance club scene. New order mm-hmm. were really popular. You know. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. So, so while new- while we're in Manchester, England, yes. Uh, now, who else <laughs> came out of out of Manchester? Number nine band that should undoubtedly be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I can understand why they aren't because the lead singer is an asshole, but these guys should be, and that is the Smiths. Okay, now it's hard for younger music fans uh, today to appreciate and understand how vital and important of a uh, the Smiths were to British pop culture in the 1980s. Um, like you said, Chris, you know, early to mid eighties, you know, it was dominated by synth pop, anything mm-hmm. electronic, you know, makeup, uh, big hair, day glow clothes, Duran Duran, new order kind of part of that as well. The Smiths were the one band, you know, yeah. flying the flag for the alternative to that. Yes. Okay, you're going to do synthesizers. We're going to play guitars. Yeah. You're going to worship David Bowie and Kraftwerk. We're going to worship the birds. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, um, we're going to worship the kinks who were forgotten at that point. Um, uh, the Smiths were very commercially successful. They were like the biggest indie band ever at that point. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh. They were huge. They were big in America too. Whenever they toured America, the Smiths would play two to 3000 capacity theaters. Right. So they had a huge cult following here in the States. Yeah. I've never, They're- I've never been personally a huge fan of the Smiths, but how soon is now? Yeah. May be if you've had a, to compile a list of the top 10 great rock singles of all time, that might be one of them. It has an argument to be there for yes, sure. Yes, because Johnny Marr um, was a brilliant guitar player. Uh, yeah. Morrissey, for as much of an insufferable dickhead as he is, yeah, uh, was a very good singer um, and, very and a good singer. lyricist. And a good lyricist. Yeah. Um, the other thing too about the Smiths is uh, how their it's their audacity. It their yeah. artistry combined with their audacity. I mean, I still think that just about the most audacious. And jaw-dropping album title of all time is "Meat Is Murder." Yeah, yeah. That, 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 I mean, that, to, to put that out there in the late eighties, uh, yeah, mid eighties, eighty five. Yeah, mid eighties. That's pretty fucking bold, right? Yeah, and you talk about influence on their peers and successive generations. No Smiths, no Britpop. <laughs> no yeah. Smith, no Blur, no Oasis, no Radiohead, because they were a huge influence on Radiohead. Oh, sure. Um, especially, especially early Radiohead, not not electronic Radiohead, but yeah. like that early Radiohead period. Smiths, big influence on them, and of course the cultural impact. I mean, they they were the iconic, like you know, this band means everything to us. No other band speaks to us, kind of band like them at the time. Um, the only parallel to the Smiths during that time, REM. Yep. You know. Um, the Smiths were the UK, REM, US. That's what they were. Yep. And if REM are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and were a long time ago, of course, motherfucking Smiths should be in there. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, uh, and if I was Morrissey, maybe I'd get on the phone with Penguin and say, you know, look, I, I really need my props. So 
can we forget that whole penguin classics thing and just go <laughs> like like just go normal penguin please yeah. yeah 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 my autobiography immediately in penguin classics first publication <laughs> oh uh, and I'm, I'm getting a signal that morrissey is wanting to sing do ya by yellow uh, oh god do you do you want my love Ah, do you, do you want my love? Do you want my love? All right. So, goodbye, Morrissey. We'll talk to you again next episode when you'll serenade us with another song. For now, we will go to New York City for band number 10 that should absolutely be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Chris? Oh, absolutely. We're talking about Sonic Youth. Uh, Sonic Youth was one of the most brilliant uh, twisters and benders of guitar sound and the use of guitars. And this was a band that could go, they weren't, I guess they, they were not a classic hard rock band in the sense, basically what they could do is they could find beautifully odd tunings and mix and match them and know how to arrange them to an almost hypnotic effect anyway, and then rev this rev it the shit up. And you you had Kim Gordon's uh, spoken word, uh, sort of disaffected brilliance. Uh, any band that has a guy named Thurston Moore who, who calls himself <laughs> Thurston Moore yeah. Uh, you know, he's going to have some wise ass sensibility. Well, that is uh, his real name too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which is, which is wonderful. And, uh, you had three bona fidely great songwriters, uh, in that band, uh, and or lyricists, uh, with Thurston Mortley, Ronaldo and Kim Gordon. And they just for daydream nation, uh, they belong in the Hall of Fame. Daydream Nation is one of the best albums of the 80s. It's one of the best, quote-unquote, indie rock or alternative rock albums ever made. Uh, it is a shining monument to, to the power of harness noise. Yeah. It was noise, but it was harness noise. Yeah. And it also is... It not only belongs in this Hall of Fame, it belongs in the Green Test Hall of Fame. Matter of fact, it should yes. be in the Palme d'Or of, <laughs> of the Green Test Festival. I can attest to, to Daydream Nation being that album for sure. <laughs> yeah, the, the, it, it is It is that album. Uh, any album that starts off with uh, Teenage Riot and Silver Rocket back to back, which yeah. is like just about the most intense 14 minutes imaginable yeah, uh, is just, it's just extraordinary. And then from there they went off and, and then did dirty and goo, which both, are awesome. <laughs> both, both of which are great. And yeah. even when they faded from obscurity, they still did great records when Jim O'Rourke uh, joined the band. Yeah. Murray were, street really underrated album. Yeah. And they were doing great stuff into like 2008, 2009. And unfortunately, their demise came when Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon got divorced. Uh, he cheated on. He cheated on her, basically. Yes, 
and uh, he cheated on her. Uh, they got divorced. She wanted nothing to do with him, which I guess was understandable. So uh, Western Massachusetts finest uh, indie rock royalty couple, uh, they screwed up and we got no more Sonic Youth. But before then, uh, they, uh, they didn't necessarily invented a genre. See, there's two types of bands on this list. Then we've talked about the first time type a couple of times. They're the band that come out with something so extraordinary and something so groundbreaking. Everybody wants to sound like them and kind of do for a period. Yeah. And then you got a few other bands and we're going to talk about a couple of others here uh, in a, in a bit that no one sounds like, and no one could even dream of sounding like. And Sonic Youth is one of those. Yeah. A wholly unique band that had a philosophy that had a songwriting framework and knew how to extract just unbelievable art out of electric guitars. Yeah. They, they were the greatest, uh, users of sculptors of guitar noise, sculpting, sculpting beauty out of guitar noise since Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Well, Neil too. And Neil Young too. Yeah. And, and, and Sonic youth, Opened for Neil Young in the 1991 Weld Tour. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. Go figure. Yeah. But see, okay, the, the, the three criteria uh, commercial success. Sonic Youth never sold millions and millions of copies, but they didn't not sell records. Yeah. They, they, were, mildly, they were mildly successful. They had yeah. a big they they, they Dream Nation sold some records. And then actually, I think their most successful record, if I'm not mistaken, is Goo. Uh, Goo. That, Goo that's the one with Bo and the Heather on it, right? Which no, guy? Bull in the Heather is 94. Goo's the one that has the, the Chuck D collaboration. Cool thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But then yeah. Uh, but yeah, then they had Bull in the Heather. Uh, that was which, years later, yeah. Yeah, which got on uh, uh, MTV. And so, yeah, they, they had their moment there in the, the early 90s where they entered the – kind of, sort of entered the mainstream. And then they had uh, uh, fans and uh, peers in high places. Yeah, but they were also extremely influential. Influential. Oh, absolutely. The, the Seattle grunge scene, bands like Nirvana and Mudhoney. Oh yeah, um, Nirvana actually spent a tour opening for Sonic Youth, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. And the, yeah, and the reason they signed with Geffen was because Sonic Youth was on Geffen. Yeah, well, um, Sonic Youth, yeah, put them in touch with Danny Goldberg, and the rest is history. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can hear echoes of Sonic Youth in a lot of industrial bands like Nine Inch Nails. Oh yeah. Um, you can hear you can hear echoes of strong echoes of Sonic Youth in a lot of post rock, like the band you mentioned earlier, Mogwai. You know, yeah. huge influence by Sonic Youth on that band. Yeah, um, and, and like all, like all those like real emo bands, like the you know at the drive-in Mars Volta. Yeah, I mean, Godspeed, you Black Emperor. You know? Oh yeah, no shit. They yeah, just, they just want to be Sonic Youths. Um, mm-hmm. So and also. Cultural impact in the late eighties, early nineties, Sonic Youth were the hip alternative band. Like they were the antithesis of before Nirvana made it mainstream. You know, they were the band you turned to. I don't want to listen to Guns and Roses. I don't want to listen to glam metal. Okay, check out Sonic Youth. That's the first yeah. band you went to. Yeah, you know? yeah, and, pretty, yeah, pretty much. I mean, they were well. They were one of two bands you went to. The other one being the next. Bands on our list. Number 11, and that is none other than Jane's Addiction, who should absolutely be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Astonishingly great band. 
astonishingly great band. In some cases, underrated even. Yeah. Um, for a band that was commercially successful and hugely uh, important. Listen, man, Jane's Addiction, uh, like when in the 1980s, when glam metal were dominating, there were two bands that stood up against that. One of them was already in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm-hmm. The other band, arguably more inventive and creative and original, Jane's Addiction. Arguably uh, my ass, they were. <laughs> they were. And I, I, and I love the Chili Peppers, but yeah, Jane's Addiction were more inventive, more original. Um, they were this curious hodgepodge of post-punk, goth, punk, glam, metal, um, and just wrapped it up in this totally unique package. Um, really, like they, 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 they took the elements that make Ty Siegel Ty Siegel, but they took it in a completely different way than where Ty Siegel took yeah, it. Yeah, and, and they're one of it, it, it's interesting that at the same time, you know, I mean, LA, like you said, you had all those like mainstream hair metal bands and. And kind of the you know the the scuzzy guys in spandex, but you had two of the most uh, idios well not idiosyncratic but eccentric bands of all time. I wouldn't even call uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers eccentric. They just had a shtick, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, white boys doing funk with you know always had good guitarists, uh, including yeah. Navarro at some point. Yeah. Uh, Jane's Addiction's guitarist, but you had two incredibly uh, eccentric bands out there. You had Guns and Roses, and you had Jane's Addiction, and James Addiction were the kind of the, the edgier, artsier. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so you've got Perry Farrell and Dave Navarro, both brilliant songwriters. Uh, Perry Farrell has uh, peripheral. Uh, Perry Farrell, he yeah. has uh, one of the great, um, most distinct rock and rollish voices yeah. of all time. Uh, he also uh, wrote, he could write any style of rock song, whether it's, it's a beautiful ballad about heroin and Jane says, uh, or a kind of a, I don't know if it would, you would call it funk, but it's almost like a lurking, uh, almost kind of communal beat exercise in, uh, uh, Ted just admit it. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, which turns into that great, like amazing, uh, solo bit. By Dave Navarro. Right. And then you also had, I mean, same thing with Guns N' Roses, too. It's like you had, uh, like, genius players on every instrument. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, Navarro is one of the great guitarists of that era or any era. Uh, yeah. You know, too bad he decided to become a professional celebrity pretty boy. Yeah. Uh, one of the best drummers. Yeah, Perkins. Steve, Stephen Perkins was great. And Eric Avery was a tremendous bassist. And so now, actually that was a secret ingredient to Jane's addiction. Um, Eric Avery, like almost, almost all their songs start with the bass. Avery was actually the underrated songwriter in that band. Oh, a yeah. lot of the, ri- a lot of the riffs were his. Um, yeah. and, and, and I, I actually, I, I have a book, uh, the, the oral history of Jane's addiction and, uh, Eric Avery actually was the underrated songwriter in that band yeah. and always said foremost influence on them. Joy Division. <laughs> yeah, which, oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I can totally see it, but but yeah. they were original enough. Uh, and, you know, it, just interesting, like I said, Navarro 
and Perry Farrell, nobody ever thought like those guys. Eric Avery, like you said, you know, between like Mountain Song and Ted Just Admit It and uh, even Idiot's Rule, which is fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, with Flea uh, there and, and, and all of that. It's just, um, you know, nothing shocking. Great album. Ritual de Ho, Ho Habitual. Ritual de Lo Habitual. Yes. Uh, which has some awesome stuff on it. Uh, you know, and just, uh, no, they belong in the Hall of Fame because, again, uh, they keep getting back together. Why? Because there's such a demand. And then, of course, there's this other little thing that they uh, contributed to the culture called Lava Palooza. That alone is, is, is a reason to get Perry Farrell into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. Know? The first yeah. two iterations of Lava Palooza were absolutely astonishing. Right. And arguably the first three. Just think about how many uh, young bands kind of got their first, like, kind of whoa from Wildfire. Yeah. I mean, the most famous of those being Rage Against the Machine, you know. Pearl Jam. Yeah. Pearl Jam uh, kind of gets its uh, tool, uh, yeah. kind of gets its win from that. But like I said, Rage with the standing out there naked with their uh, with the duct tape over their mouths. Yeah. You know, yeah. So the stunt <laughs> and all that. So Wildfire. You know, they still do a Lollapalooza this year. This year it became a super spreader event. It continues yeah. its legacy, you know? <laughs> but, yeah. No. I mean, and also also the influence of Jane's Addiction's music. Profound, underrated, profound influence on Tool. Um, underrated influence on Pearl Jam. Yes. A lot of people don't talk. People talk about Pearl Jam. Oh, Neil Young, The Who, and all that. Dude, Jane's Addiction. And Eddie Vedder will be the first one to tell you. Yeah, and so Jeff Ahmed and Stone Gossard, Jane's Addiction, especially on Ten, yeah. big influence on Ten. Well, um, I mean, well, the, the, the influence tool. is more pronounced in Green River, and yeah, and, and Mother Love Bone for that matter. I mean, yeah, because you know Andy Wood, but yeah. you know, I would also say Allison Chains was probably influence. Yeah, Allison Chains, and you know who I would also say an influence on, and this is going to sound weird, Built to Spill. Absolutely. I, you, Especially at like you know uh, when Built to Spill in the mid to late '90s when they were in their like uh, their their uh, their triumphant you know messianic phase yeah you know indie in, indie rock gone arena you know yeah you, you can hear a lot of Jane's Addiction in there oh yeah absolutely same thing with Modest Mouse I would argue Modest Mouse too yeah yeah sure so there were a lot of those bands that followed them in the '90s and yeah I mean basically if if you were eccentric and adventurous. Uh, Jane's addiction was in your vocabulary during that yeah. period. So absolutely. So yeah, really, they, they were a seminal band of the era, and they should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, and the reason it must be a political thing. I mean, I know that uh, Perry Farrell has a reputation for being an asshole, and uh, you know Dave Navarro. I mean, like, uh, you know, he's an interesting case because he's just a tremendous guitarist. But he's really hard to take seriously because uh, nobody's ever squeezed more mileage out of being pretty than, <laughs> than, than Navarro. I mean, he hosted yeah. a uh, he hosted a tattoo reality show for ten years. Uh, that uh, strangely enough, my wife was just binge watching. <laughs> <laughs> it was called Ink Master, and it was on for like eight or nine seasons. And he was kind of the host of it, and you know, it was basically it, it's treating. Uh, they talk about human canvases, uh, which is the interesting <laughs> term. But, but you know, Navarro is just out there. 
you know, married the Carmen Electra, you know, very L.A. scenes for a boy. Uh, fascinating life. Uh, one of the few rock bios I've read in the last 20 years is his. Uh, hmm. He he had it rough. He he's had a rough life, but he has. You should you should read the Jane's Addiction, uh, uh, the oral history of Jane's Addiction. Yeah, uh, it's really really came out several years ago, but it's really really good. Yeah, I want to say that uh, uh, what's his face there, Neil Strauss co-wrote uh, Navarro's autobiography, but it's really oh, really? really really good. Uh, hmm. def- definitely check it out. So uh, that is the All Jane's. Right, Chris. We're, we're we're on we're in L.A. Now we're going to move up. for the, We have two more bands to go that absolutely should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Number 12. And for the next two, we are in sunny Seattle. <laughs> yeah, sunny my ass. Uh, as an aside, you know, I'm a Syracuse native. And uh, one of our claims to fame is that we're always in perpetual competition with Seattle for the fewest sunny days uh in america for a given year although i think we're going to win it this year given that seattle just had a of a, a global warming heat wave of and too bad syracuse never had syracuse never had a rock band explosion yeah i mean look i mean probably the the most famous band from syracuse is earth crisis uh <laughs> you know if you think about it. uh great band but i mean i I've, I've met those guys but anyway that's an aside so we're going to talk about soundgarden Number 12. And Soundgarden is another one of these bands. It's the third one in a row that when you talk about them, uh, no one sounds like them. Uh, yeah. Absolutely no one sounds like them because people what, have people have tried. People have tried, but no one can even approach them because think about what they had. They had the iconic front man with the incredible howl of a voice. Uh, they had this uh, like mystical looking just kind of freaky looking Indian dude. Uh, <laughs> uh, just absolutely just his lead guitar and even rhythm guitar skills are just incredible. I and mean, he kind of takes the Tony Iommi thing from Black Sabbath and just cranks it the fuck out. Uh, and, adds, and adds a punk element to it. That's very yeah. important. Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's, there's a punk, you know, there's a punk element to it. Uh, there is... Uh, a Sabbath element to it. There's metal. I mean, they're just orthodox metal. I mean, look, I mean, I would say that, um, you know, some of the better metal that was happening in the 80s is a huge influence on mm-hmm. um, Soundgarden as well. I mean, if you listen to their album, uh, Louder Than Love, uh, that's a metal record. Uh, yeah. That's not necessarily a Grinch record. That's a metal record. Uh, but, you know, think about their cultural influence uh, they were one of those four bands that was lucky or unlucky enough, uh, depending on your perspective, to get commodified uh, or commoditized yeah. in 1992, along with Nirvana, Alice in Chains, and Pearl Jam. Uh, and for good reason, outshined one of the better rock songs of that era. I mean, yeah. basically just perfect, uh, you know, perfect melody, uh, perfect guitar stuff going on, uh, great lyric. I mean, just just a brilliant song. But then from there, they graduate into making what I think is one of the top 10 hard rock heavy metal albums of all time. One of my favorite albums of all time, Super Unknown. Yeah, awesome uh, album. Just about perfect. It's long. It's 15 songs in long, but so what? It is a brilliant listen. I remember in college, the last two years, every time I had to do a difficult paper or a project in college, that's what I listen to. 
that was my soundtrack for making me, it, it was literally a thinking man's metal record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know? mean, su- super unknown is basically our generation's Led Zeppelin four. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it's interesting. And I've always kind of thought that one of the worst songs on it is Black Hole Sun, and that's the most famous song. I uh, think it's one of the best rock ballads of all time. Oh, it, it's it's a tr- yeah, it's a great song, but it might be one of the worst songs on that album, which kind of shows you how good that album is. Uh, and well, and the other thing about that record too is this is where Chris Cornell really takes over as just about the primary songwriter of the band because. They broke out with Bad Motorfinger, but the most famous songs on it were basically written by bassist Ben Shepard, yeah. uh, who by 94 was blown out on drugs, alcohol, or mental yeah. illness or something. One of the yeah. reasons they broke up a couple years later is because the relationship with him got untenable. Uh, but, you know, Cornell's songwriting chops, and obviously he went poppier and sappier as he got older. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean... Uh, you know, I mean, look, I mean, Soundgarden is so good. We can forgive him the sin of Audio Slave. <laughs> and that terrible solo album he did in 99. Well, yeah, I mean, he had a great, great single from it. But other than that, yeah, it was just him trying to be a crooner. And it just, yeah. But Soundgarden definitely belongs in the Hall of Fame. Because, yeah. again, uh, people tried to copy them. They couldn't. One of the most singular rock and roll bands of all time. Cornell counts as one of the great heavy metal hard rock frontmen of all time. And they helped define uh, the era. And, yeah. uh, you know, dare I say, outside of the Nirvana records, they made the best record, the the third best record yeah. of all those of all those bands. Number 13, last one, and they absolutely should be in there. Alice in Chains. Absolutely. One of my, one of my favorite bands, uh, oh, Soundgarden is too, but, but Alice in Chains, I was, I was obsessed with Dirt in 1983. Yeah. And Jarrah Flies for that matter. Yeah. I, I mean, photos. yeah, yeah. I mean, commercial success, you name it. The only EP to debut at number one in the history of the Billboard chart. Um, they had a lot of hits that are still on rock radio. Um, extremely influential on their peers and successive generations of musicians. For better or worse. About this, for better or for worse. We talked about the dregs of Nirvana. How even Ricky Rackman said himself, a whole shitload of bands should just be paying royalty checks to Alice in Chains. Yeah. We're just yeah. straight up ripping them off. Well, look, I mean, my favorite anecdote about Alice in Chains in recent years is, look, you know, there were a lot of bands out there. Uh, I can't even remember half their names, but that were just copying the, uh, like, Seven Dust is like this. So like, Seven Dust yeah. had, like, a, you know, black uh, kind of soulful lead singer, but the rest of it was just aping Alice in Chains for sure. Uh, yeah. But all these bands that were trying their hardest to sound like Alice in Chains, I'm driving on the road and I lived in Syracuse, you know, my hometown. And all of a sudden I hear the song comes come on the radio. And within five seconds, I, I knew that was the real Alice in Chains. Yeah. And this was Alice in Chains, had, you know, after a period in the mothballs coming out with a new singer. Yeah. Who sounded like Lane Staley. Yeah. And when he did the harmonies with Jerry Cantrell, sounded like the best of the stuff from like Dirt and Jar of Flies and... Uh, you know, some of the facelift and some of those other 
Um, self-titled Alice in Chains is a great record. The Dog Album. That's oh, a really yeah. good record too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, you know, Sap is another wonderful EP. Uh, yeah. You know, and so it's just they like Lane Staley. Uh, nobody. He, he was kind of like the equivalent of the blues singer of the grunge scene. You know, he no, was, yeah, he was the bluesiest, yeah. Yeah, and you know, nobody conveyed pain, nobody conveyed uh, you know, agony, uh, you know, nobody kind of yeah. kind of conveyed, you know, nobody was as personal or as expressive uh, as right. he was. I mean, Cornell had better pipes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, Eddie Vedder, uh, you know, obviously in in all their ways, all four of those guys from those bands were wonderful singers. Yeah. But uh Staley was the most um real. I guess you could say, and well, Cobain. <laughs> yeah, Cobain was pretty real, but well, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say he was the bluesiest, but he also had the, uh, he was the most expressive in terms of how he could convey the emotions, yeah, and and yeah. all of that. I mean, for what's worth, the most talented of those vocalists is Mark Lanigan, uh, as a you know as a singer. Really, uh, I would still say Cornell. You think? I mean, yeah, like I yeah. said, Cornell had the pipes, but Lanigan had and Cor- that. And Cor- Cornell had the range. Yeah. I mean, he could do Vetter. He could do Cobain. <laughs> yeah. He could do Screechy Dio. He could do Low Growl. He could do it all. Yeah. Yeah, no, there. But be that as me, we we're focusing on Alice in Chains. They're the exact opposite. Again, so you have some bands on this uh, list that nobody could sound like. And then yeah. you had uh, Alice in Chains, which was so... Uh, influential that everybody tried and you know look some some people come close i mean you've, you've got like one of the most interesting mediocre bands of all time lincoln park mm-hmm. that not musically but chester bennington was doing a very bad poor man's impression of lane staley so the new the new metal lane staley yeah. chester bennington we shouldn't speak ill of the dead <laughs> yeah i know i mean you know i'm like folks now we are here for our vault segment where we talk about really old albums or maybe not so old but older albums that we want to shine a light on as of course like we said earlier um the late great drummer for the rolling stones charlie watts passed away earlier this week a very sad thing for hardcore rock and roll fans so uh our vault segment for this episode I, or we, sorry, I shouldn't say I, we are calling it the Charlie Watts Memorial Edition of The Vault. So Chris and I, you and I are both going to do Rolling Stones albums. Because obviously the Rolling Stones, that is the legacy of Charlie Watts, right? So uh, I'm going to do my pick. And my pick will be probably the most, be- well, one of the most belittled <laughs> of yeah. Rolling Stones albums. Um their Satanic Majesty's Request from 1967, which I absolutely adore. Yeah, it's, a, it's gonna, a good record. I'm I mean, going to give my defense of it. I, yes. I, I swear. Yeah, I'm I want to hear this. I'm going to defend this better than I defended uh, Prince's Under the Cherry Moon. I promise. There you go. <laughs> it will be a better defense. All right. Now, this album is generally seen as the Stones' greatest folly. 
It was released in December 1967, but recorded smack in the middle of the vaunted Summer of Love. It was supposed to be the band's great psychedelic statement in a year where almost everybody was trying to make a great <laughs> psychedelic statement. Yeah, it was kind of your thing. In 1967, you, you had to kind of prove your bona fides, you know. I mean, I think I think even Engelbert Humperdinck did a psychedelic record. <laughs> oh, we have to uncover that. That's a future vault record right there. <laughs> That's for you. Your mom like Humperdinck. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Um, anyway, being the second biggest band in the world at the time, the Stones, it was inevitable that anything they did would be compared to the Beatles. And for anyone who's either totally ignorant of rock history or is one of those despicable contrarian hipster douchebags who refuse to acknowledge any music that came out before 1980, uh, for those of you, in 1967, the Beatles did release Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band not only one of the greatest albums of all time, but an international pop cultural landmark in music history. Now, at first glance, it isn't too promising for the Stones. Uh, the album cover is almost a direct ripoff of the Sgt. Pepper cover with the band dressed in shiny day glow psychedelic gear. The Stones leaning more toward, you know, wizard fashion as opposed to the Beatles marching band look. And they're surrounded by colorful, uh, acid-inspired surroundings. Like the Sgt. Pepper cover, it even has a bed of flowers lying in front of the band, a la the Beatles. And on first listen, the album got a critical beatdown. Uh... They were accused of abandoning their hard blues, rock and roll, R&B roots. They were accused of being basically posers and hopping on the psychedelic bandwagon while at the same time shamelessly trying to uh, ride the Beatles' psych pop coattails, if you will. Uh, Their fans apparently thought so as well, as the album initially sold well, but eventually plummeted down the charts. And at the time, it was the first Stones album to not have a genuine hit single. Apparently, no one hates this album more than the Stones themselves. (laughs) Keith Richards has been notoriously dismissive of the album throughout the years, calling it alternately, quote, a load of crap and, quote, flim flam. (laughs) Uh, Mick Jagger himself disavowed the album in a 1995 interview. And I'm going to do my best... uh, a uh, Jagger British drawl voice. It's not very good. It had interesting things on it, but I don't think any of the songs are very good. There's two good songs on it. The rest of them are nonsense. Yeah, so that's what Jagger said in an interview. Yeah. Now, there is some merit to what merit to what the Stones were accused of. You know, getting away from their strengths, trying too hard to be part of the, the age of Aquarius and all that crap. However, 54 years onward and listening to the album with fresh ears, is it really that bad? This curmudgeon over here says, absolutely not. However, before I defend this album, context is required, ladies and gentlemen. Now, beginning beginning in 1967, the Rolling Stones were, like pretty much all their contemporaries of the time, High as fuck most of the time. <laughs> Usually yeah. on pills, weed, and acid. 
also being the gigantic rock stars that they were, by this point, either they were too high or too arrogant to care. <laughs> well, it caught up to them in February of that year. Uh, the atrocious, thankfully deceased tabloid magazine News of the World tipped off the police to this supposed bacchanalian orgy of sex and drugs going on in uh, Keith Richards' house, uh, his huge house in West Sussex. Now, urban legend would have you believe that at the time of the bust, Jagger and Richards were having a threesome with Marianne Faithful, <laughs> with Jagger eating a candy bar out of Marianne Faithful's pussy. Needless to say, this is bullshit. That did not happen. <laughs> oh, darn it. That's a pretty good idea, though. I, I should try that one time with my wife. That was, that's but... the rumor. It's not true. Yep. Faithful was naked with only a rug covering her because at the time when the cops barged in, she had just come out of the shower. Okay. Um, the only crazy drug action they found was a few marijuana roaches in Jagger's possession. And the marijuana in his possession was a negligible amount of weed that usually amounted to a fine. And of some amphetamine pills that were purchased legally in Italy. Okay. They found nothing on Richards. But since he was the owner of the place, according to English law, he was responsible for any drugs found on the property. Right. Now, this was a time when the public was starting to catch on to the, shall we say, decadent behavior of the counterculture and its pop stars. And so it's no surprise the cops were on a witch hunt. So Mick and Keith got busted, got released on bail the following day, and spent the next several months in and out of court dealing with lawyers and the prospect of, a long, of long prison sentences for both of them. Now, this is important to note because this has a huge impact on the recording of their Satanic Majesty's request. Yes, Jagger and Richards were and are the main songwriting team with the Stones. And while they had songs on hand to record at this time, they were still pretty much in sketch form with the two leaders not really spending much time in the studio and never at the same time. And because of that, it fell on Brian Jones, the lead guitarist and musical magpie, to bring things together. Now, anyone who knows Brian Jones's background story knows that with his drug addictions and self-destructive behavior, way worse than any of the other Stones, he was probably not the best choice to be the level-headed one and keep shit running smoothly. No. <laughs> no question. <laughs> However... What Jones did bring to the table, no matter how drug addled he was, was he was innately brilliant. He had innately brilliant musicianship as a, as a, as a multi-instrumentalist, and he had a gift for arrangements and production. Now, while Jagger's and Richard's productions were very hit and run due to their legal troubles at the time, it really fell on Jones to flesh out the songs and give them life. And he did. Boy, did he flesh them out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Andrew this this album's his finest hour. Yeah, it really is. Andrew Lou Goldham, the band's manager at the time and their usual producer, he got so fed up with the band's hijinks and their lack of discipline that he recused himself from producing the record. And as a result, Satanic Majesties became the first album whose production was credited to the Rolling Stones. 
However, anyone who knows this band well, its history and each member's profile to anyone like that, like us, <laughs> um, it's clear, like you said, Chris, this is Brian Jones's baby through and through. Um, only Jones would have the vision to expand the band's sound to include sound effects using a theremin, a mellotron, shortwave radio static, glockenspiels, yeah, glockenspiels, traditional African percussion instruments, and exotic Middle Eastern stringed instruments for texture. Oh yeah, not to mention. Not to mention the obligatory sitar and tabla. Well, yeah. I mean, at that point, you know, half sitar will travel in Britain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, yeah. George George Harrison is doing that. Oh, that motherfucker. Let me do it. You know? Let me do it. Exactly. Yeah. And while the album is sprawling and at times incoherent and often indulgent, uh, it does have moments of sonic wizardry that really border on genius. Um, she's a rainbow while silly in it's even for the time cliche, whimsical psych pop lyricism, you know, it's a fun it's a song. Be- it's yeah. a beautiful pop song that is lush with a playful string arrangement done by John Paul Jones. Yes. Led Zeppelin, John Paul Jones. Uh, the best track on the album comes toward the end. Uh, that's 2000 light years from home which may be Brian Jones's greatest achievement as a Rolling Stone, which is saying something considering he was the creative force behind Paint It Black and Ruby Tuesday. Yep. Uh, it is a colossus of fucking dark-ass, heavy-ass psychedelia with a menacing tension that always teases a release but never quite gets there. But that makes sense after all. You know, it's, it is so very lonely and you are 2,000 light years from home. Of course, that number increases with every repetition of the refrain. Yes. Brilliant. One of the greatest psychedelic rock songs ever recorded. Yeah, it really right is up there with, right, right up there with anything the Beatles did, you know? Yeah, no, it, uh, really, it really is uh, yeah. uh, fantastic. The other thing about this record, uh, and again, like it, it, it is slop, but it's slop in the best sense. Where, yeah. you know, a lot of the songs are kind of, they'll go over here and then, and then they'll have these magic segues. But in some of those segues in the middle of the record you yeah. get a very much of a preview of where they landed on Beggar's Banquet. The folk country blues shit. Yeah. It's there. Folk, you can hear it in there. The folk country blues stuff and that kind of, uh, you know, Charlie Jones, uh, Charlie Jones, Charlie Watts is distinctive, <laughs> uh, yeah. sort of, uh, like little blues gallop that he, that defines a lot of those songs on that record. And so you yeah. get, in these interludes and then oh okay now back to our regularly scheduled marimba programming uh <laughs> you know and it's and it's so it's it's weird but you do get this sort of sense of the kind of band that they were becoming uh yeah. that there was this tension you had brian jones doing this thing but then you had the mick and keith uh thing where they were kind yeah. of uh headed and so it's yeah it's a record that it, it's it's this pivot record you know they kind of got lost they did this record. Brian Jones has his finest moment, and then they pivot into uh, one. Brian Jones descending into uh, well, I'm going to touch on that soon. <laughs> yeah, uh, his his addiction issues and how he perished, and then uh, Mick and Keith really finding their voice, and not only that, but also finding Jimmy Miller. And so, yeah, within yeah. within a year and a half, they're they're in their pocket, 
as a band. Yeah. And here's the thing about Satanic Majesties. Like, it's it's a very dark, menacing type of psychedelic record. Oh, yeah. You know? Well, it may very well have been an attempt to out-pepper Sgt. Pepper's. <laughs> um, it's a much darker album. It's more menacing. It's eerier than Sgt. Pepper. But yeah. then again, that's always been the Stones' M.O. Yeah. When compared to the Beatles. You know? And by the Beatles, by the way, who were no slouches in the darkness department themselves, as anyone who's truly familiar with their discography can tell you. But the Stones always had a cynical, dark air to them. And that cynicism really pervades even throughout this, which is like their hippiest of hippie moments. You know, um, I've always interpreted their satanic majesty's request as like the stones sending off the hippie vibes of the summer of love using the hippie culture's own tropes against it yeah. and kind of presaging the dark times ahead. Um, so I, I, that's how I always see this album. More so than I've been, say, Love's Forever Changes. It always gets credited with that same thing. Anyway, sadly for Brian Jones, the commercial and critical failure of the album really, really broke his heart. Um, he dived, like you said, deeper into drug use and self-destruction. He was barely present for the recording of Beggar's Banquet in 1968. And he was fired in the summer of 1969 during the recording of Let It Bleed. You know, I mean, for as talented as he was, he just he just wasn't a songwriter and he could never get over Mick and Keith's creative takeover of the band. Mm -hmm. uh, he died from a presumed accidental drowning, quote unquote, at his house's swimming pool. But there have been various theories and stories throughout the years that have come out um, questioning the veracity of that, you know, i.e. murder has been bandied about quite a bit in recent years. Yeah. Anyway, um, that's still a mystery. Um, as for Mick and Keith's legal woes, Jagger got three months in prison. Keith Richards got one year in prison. However, they were only there for one day each. Yep. <laughs> On an appeal, the judge drastically reduced the sentences to just fines. And I've always suspected some old school record label payola involved. No shit. That's just, yeah. That's just me. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you know, we can't have, you know, these guys in jail for two years when they're just about to be the biggest band in the world. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that that's the power of money for you, for sure. So now we go from the late 60s slot period and kind of what was kind of seen as a little dip in their rise to uh, a very, very unexpected, but alt and ultimately brief uh, awesome comeback of the band yes. in the uh, early 90s. Uh, so talking about Voodoo Lounge, uh, which, again, comes out in the summer of 1994. Uh, I remember that because I was washing dishes at a restaurant in the summer between freshman and sophomore years of college. Uh, so here's a few things to say uh, about this record, which... I definitely think belongs in, in their top 10 greatest uh, records. Really? Top 10? I like it, but I don't go, I don't go top 10. Top Jeez. 10, yeah. Uh, ooh, I want to fuck your sweet ass. Well, no, no, no. The, the whole line of, uh, the, yeah, you're saying Sparks Will Fly, that song. It's, it's, yes. it's, here's the whole line in context. Ooh, gonna, ooh, put, put my foot on the gas. Ooh, gonna get there real fast. Ooh, I'm gonna fuck your sweet ass. 
Yep. That's how it goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that is the context. But yeah. with that raunchy, entirely not subtle, subtle volley by Mick Jagger, <laughs> the Rolling Stones announced their return to serious rock and roll in 1994. Uh, Voodoo Lounge was a revelation when it was released in 1994, and effectively it still is, seeing how it's still the only good Stones record released since after 1981. Now, yeah. uh, since this is a Charlie Watts uh, memorial uh, section, it really felt right for me to focus on this record. There were a few directions that I could go, but Watts is clearly the star of this record. Uh, no undercover of the night. Yeah, that, that was my other option, which is a fascinatingly <laughs> mediocre record, uh, but, but it has some really cool kind of rhythm stuff going on. Charlie Watts is the star of that record, too. Uh, but here, uh, there's a couple of things he has on his side. Uh, one, Don Was is the producer and puts him front and center in the mix. And so all of it comes from uh, Jones's snare right there. He's the driver. Uh, it's not Mick is the driver of Charlie. It's Charlie as the driver of everything that's going on. Yeah. Uh, the other thing to note is that this was the debut on record of bassist Daryl Jones. Mm -hmm. He was a fantastic bassist, uh, had done a lot of jazz work before then, but came in, replaced Bill Wyman. And so now Watts has a new partner in the rhythm section. And, you know, Nicky Hopkins is still around to play piano. And uh, this is the return of the rhythm juggernaut. And a yeah. lot of this, I guess you can really credit to Don Woods, who at that point, he's more most famous for, resurrecting the career of Bonnie Raitt and doing some of those uh, great records and was a very in-demand uh, producer uh, in the 90s and, and a, a pretty interesting character. He did a, if I'm remembering this right, he did a, uh, a documentary on Brian Wilson, uh, which was uh, pretty extraordinary. So the story of Voodoo Lounge, uh, Don, Woo, Don Woods comes in and produces he reminds the Rolling Stones that they're, you know, the fucking Rolling Stones. Yeah. And he inspires them to make a really fun Rolling Stones record. Uh, they're not going to reinvent the wheel at this point. They're not going to uh, veer uh, too much off the path. And if they do, it'll suck, which they proved with the efforts before there. Well, they were kind of phoning it in, but they also were terrible records. And it was, the, yeah. it was abandoned an identity crisis where the, the corporate, you know, touring juggernaut had kind of taken over uh, the identity from, you know, like the band and the music. And, you know, Rick, Mick and Keith were hating each other for years. So they come back together. And again, guys, you know, you want to be successful again, do a Rolling Stones record. Okay, it yeah. might not be Exile on Main Street. It might not be Sticky Fingers. But come on, you know, have, have fun. Get back to you know, hearkening to the rhythm machine of the early and mid seventies. And I guess I could summarize that as swing, bang, shuffle, shuffle, boogie, woogie, bang, swing. In other words, songs about rocking and fucking. Yep. But swing, <laughs> bang, shuffle, shuffle, boogie, woogie, bang, swing. I mean, that's, that's really the best way to describe the the Rolling Stones at their best. I mean, obviously nothing on here approaches rocks off or tumbling dice or anything like that. But you get some really great rhythm stuff. Uh, you got me rocking, which is just vintage. 
wouldn't have been out of place on It's Only Rock and Roll, and it arguably could have found a place on the Exile because uh, it really has that going on. It's yeah. the same kind of stuff. Uh, there, you know, Sparks Will Fly is a really great little rocker, has that line we were just talking about. Uh, and then this is really the beginning. And so not only do you have Watts as a star and was as a master producer, and they're getting back, this is the best guitar interplay between Ron Wood and Keith Richards yeah. since Some Girls, easily. Yeah, they probably, got back yeah. into that swing. Uh, you yeah. know, like Ron Wood was a great master of subtle, quiet slide guitar work, and that's all over yeah. this record. Uh, but really the highlight here is this is Mick Jagger embracing his dirty old man self. <laughs> totally. Uh, when the record's released, he's 51 years old. Uh, you know, at that point, he's still at Jerry Hall and probably still fucking like, you know, 20-year-old chicks on the side. Uh, and so he's fully embracing this. And you can tell he's having a lot of fun on this record. Uh, his, his, his range as a vocalist isn't quite as good. And so he's kind of having fun with the low end and the growl part of his voice is kind of the parody Mick Jagger singing. But right. he's also, but his lyrics, I mean, I don't think he ever got dirtier or bawdier or just flat out kind of uh, blue material funny as he did on some of these lyrics. So, at, at least not, at least not since this album. <laughs> certainly not since this album. And, and look, you know, he got kind of explicit. He got suggestive in his lyrics and obviously, you know, Brown sugar is about as uh, bawdy as it gets without actually yeah. swearing. But yeah. on this record, he goes full bore. Uh, my personal favorite verse is from the song I Go Wild, which is another one of those mm. great rhythm, slow yeah. rhythm rockers on this album. Uh, and it says, uh, and the doctors say you'll be okay. And if you only stay away from femme fatales and dirty bitches and daylight drabs and nighttime witches and working <laughs> girls and blue stockings and dance hall babies and body poppers and waitresses with broken noses, check out girls striking poses and politicians garish wives with alcoholic cunts like knives. <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah. That's and, a lyric for the ages. <laughs> yeah. And that's, uh, yeah, that, that, that is what you call misogyny at its most refined. Therein lies the end of our vault segment for this week. And we've come to the end of the 18th edition of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. We are approaching 20. Uh, we are very proud of that. And uh, we have big plans. And uh, eventually, once we figure out, you know, we're not the techiest guys in the world. Once we figure out how to crop the damn thing, we are going to debut our awesome new logo, which really captures the curmudgeonly spirit of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. It does yes. not look like the uh, cover of an old 45 from a punk band from like, you know, Kenosha, Wisconsin anymore. The Curmudgeon Rock Report will keep on rocking if you do. Catch us where you catch all the podcasts. Visit us on Twitter at at CurmudgeonPod. Drop us a line at CurmudgeonRock at gmail.com. Always check out our show notes at medium.com. Join us next time as rock nerds smack with knowledge. Stay rude, stay crude, stay sophisticated. Thank you for listening.